Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Love it. It is so good to be with one another in worship. Amen. And to seek something that can happen among us here that's so very different than happening outside of here. We gather to fix our mind's attention and our heart's affection upon the one that we believe can transform any of us. So today we begin in pursuit of that good transformation, a brand new sermon series. And can I just take a moment, and I know I do this every time we start a new sermon series, but my word, was that not a beautiful video preparation for the series? And, and listen, yeah, celebrate, go ahead. I just, sometimes I'm a little gobsmacked at what some of you people can do. Do you know that we are unfairly blessed at this church with talent? That's not something we bought off of like YouTube. Our people made this. Stephanie, Wright, Ben, uh, Self, and that voiceover. Caroline, that voiceover. Listen, Laura and I are talking about this, and we want you to call us and read us a bedtime story each night, if that's okay. We'll drift right off. And we're grateful to Mike Williams for letting us come out to Lake Lanier and prepare a video presentation that you just saw that invites us into a deep conversation. You know, it's gotten me thinking about some things today. I'm thinking about tables. Do you realize how much life happens around tables? If I think long enough, I might in this moment remember with vivid detail the kitchen table of my childhood home. It was round and bright sunshine yellow. Yeah, it was the 1970s, so cut us some slack, you know. Bright yellow and, and, and on the surface of it, there was this crescent-shaped burn in the paint where one of us put a hot pan without putting a towel down first. Yeah, and it remained there for years. It's interesting that the things that happen at the table will leave an impression for years. I remember that table was a little wobbly unless you took a newspaper, are you with me? And you stuck it under one of the feet and then everything was just fine. If I think about it, I can remember the, the dining room table of my paternal grandmother. Sometimes we'd show up as kids and she would have Rice Krispie Treats cooling on that table beneath the Arctic blast of a window unit that cooled the whole home. Yeah, and we'd sit, sit at that table for dinner and we would be in that tiny little room with this console-sized record player and AM radio the size of like a, like a Volkswagen. And we would listen to Glenn Miller. Yo, somebody said, oh yeah. Yeah. 
and Tommy Dorsey. And I think about all of the sights and sounds of what we see and hear around the tables of our lives. If I think about it long enough, I think about the table of my maternal grandparents. They lived in a duplex and, and the kitchen was kind of a, an all-purpose room, if you know what I'm talking about. There's a refrigerator, washer, dryer, family table. And I, I think about the years of laughter and love and struggle and celebration and hurt and hope around that table. And if I think about it, it doesn't take too much work for me to think about the very first dining room table that Laura and I were able to buy with our own money. We had no money in the very beginning. We bought our own table. We could get rid of the rickety hand-me-down that we had. And that table was awesome because it was just high enough for our toddler boys to run underneath the table without impeding their, their flow of traffic. They were that short, see, until the summer when Nathan grew an inch or two in height. And every time he ran the same pattern smack into the corner of the table and we would spend the entire summer nursing pump knots and cuts and bruises as he and his brother learned to navigate life around the table. There's a lot to be said for learning to navigate life around the table. Can I get you to think for just a moment about a table in your past or maybe in your present and how much life and love and hurt and healing happens around the table. I have images in my mind of a table with a stack of bills. These are the ones that we will pay this month and this other stack is the month that we will pay next month. These are the bills that are due now but we'll pay later. Because I don't know if any of you know but the you know, electric bills come with like two dates on them. Anybody know about this? There's like a due date and then there's a we're coming to turn it off date. All right? I remember tables with stacks of those kind of bills. I remember... Tables where confessions have been spoken, where forgiveness begins its long journey. See, our tables are where we laugh until our cheeks hurt from laughing and there are tables where we cry and the tears flow in a way to soak the very fibers of the table and become a part of the story itself. Early in some Jewish traditions, did you know that when families would begin and a, and a husband and a wife would become married, the husband at times would make the family table out of wood and, and it would go with them through their entire journey and if by God's good grace he lives a long life, do you know that in times if he dies an old man, the family will take the material of the table and make his coffin from the table so that he might be buried in the very symbol of the life that he lived. And when I think about that and how much life and love happens around a table, it's no surprise to me why our Lord when he was attempting to show, to demonstrate what life looks like in the kingdom of God, he chose to do so around tables. 
the very beginning of his ministry began at a kind of table. He chose to make his first miracle turning water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, a wedding feast. That's a, a table. And his, his earthly ministry ended and the last act of his earthly ministry was to dip his bread in the same bowl of his betrayer with those who he was closest to around the last Passover Seder meal that he would ever have at a table. And in between those two tables, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega of the tables, there are all these table moments in between in the life of Jesus where he would teach and heal people around. He would inspire, he would challenge, he would call out, he would rebuke, he would reprove, he would transform people in all of these beautiful table moments. Do you know that our Lord chose from time to time to eat dinner with Pharisees and Sadducees scribes, the religious leaders of the day whose very positions symbolized the very center of the power systems of his age. And he would break bread with them around the table in order to reveal to them that religion is not intended to yoke people with a burden that keeps them from God, but it's intended to liberate them for the possibility of actually doing life with God. And he would do that at a table. But if he met with them on a Tuesday, you can be sure that on a Wednesday, he would be breaking bread with prostitutes and thieves and tax collectors, sinners of every flavor. And he would break bread with them around the table to remind them there's nowhere you can go and there's nothing that you can do that puts you outside the realm of God's good love for you, that you have intrinsic value and worth and God wants you. And he would do that with them around the table. And he did it so often, so often, that the guys he ate with on Tuesday began to call him a glutton and a drunkard and a sinner because of who he hung out with. These moments around the table for Jesus were important because he used them to demonstrate a glimpse of what it's like to live in the kingdom that was coming. And he would say, you know, the kingdom of God is like this, this kid who gets full of his ego and he takes off with all of his father's inheritance and he lives in a season of lostness for a long time. But then when he wakes up, he comes home. And the father's heart is so full of love and gratitude for the reality that his son is coming home that he gives him every symbol that he can find to express his joy that one of his had come home. He gives him shoes and he gives him a robe. He gives him the family ring, but it's not enough in the father's heart. He says, you know what this occasion needs? This occasion needs a party. And so he killed the fatted calf and spread this table. Because sometimes after the thing has happened and after the words have been said, and after the fissure has been rent in the relationship, sometimes the best thing we can do is sit across from one another, break bread, and let the healing begin. He ate 
around the table of Mary and Martha and had to listen to them argue about who's supposed to be setting the table. (laughs) He went to another home and had to listen to two brothers argue about who should sit at the head or the right or the left of the table. And he used those occasions to say that in the kingdom of God, there's a different economy. You don't have to wrangle your way to the front of the line. You don't have to project something that will make all the world around you affirm and bless and welcome you. You're already welcome. So in the kingdom of God, seek to be last. Humble yourself and God will raise you up. See, he taught and he he healed a man at a Sabbath day meal, which meant he broke a religious rule. I kind of dig that about Jesus. Because there are some things that are more important than religious rules. Yeah. And of all the things that he did, we could talk, if we had some time, we could talk about the feeding of the multitudes and how all that was was a big, green, grassy picnic table where he attempted to show the world, do not fear. This world is not a world of scarcity, but your God is a God of abundance, and if you open your life to me, you will be fed. But of all the expressions that are most moving to me, it may be in his resurrection because of all the ways that he could have chosen to reveal to his friends that he is alive, that he's no longer in the grip of death. He chooses in one story to show up on the beach while the fishers show up and he has a breakfast made for them around a sandy table and in another one of the gospels, he's walking along incognito like a stranger alongside two of his disciples and they kind of feel sorry for him. Where is he gonna go? It's getting late, he hasn't eaten anything. So they welcome him into their home and it's when they break bread around their Table that they recognize this is resurrection. He's alive. For Jesus, for Jesus, the kingdom of God is best understood about the kinds of things that happen around a table. About a table that welcomes any who are broken and lost and alone, who are hurting. And he wants us to imagine in all these table lessons and all these table moments, he wants us to imagine that there is coming a table in the kingdom that is to come where everyone who has been broken is mended and everyone who has been hungry or thirsty is fed and everyone who thought they were completely alone finds themselves at a long table with all kinds of fellow guests. Now this image that Jesus continually brings up if you have the eyes to see it in scripture is not something original to Jesus. But Jesus is reaching down deep into the very bedrock of his own Jewishness. One of the dominant theological principles of his Jewishness, of his Jewish theology, the dominant theme of hope was hope in the reality that there is coming what's called a messianic banqueting feast. And at that good day when God calls all the nations together, all who have been broken are mended and all who have been hungry are welcome to eat freely. It is a dominant image in the hope of Israel that there is coming a day like that. And we read about it in places like, well, like the 25th chapter of Isaiah you know, Isaiah, writing about eight centuries before Jesus, is prophesying to the people of the land, saying, listen, bad news, destruction's coming. You've been living like hell forever. 
You've been living in ways that are contrary to the ways of Yahweh. And now you will live with the consequences of your decisions. The Assyrians are coming and shortly thereafter, the Babylonians will finish the job. Just as a side note, this God who we believe has grace that is sufficient and abundant for us, do you know that that God will also still allow us to live a little while with the consequences of our decisions? Because sometimes living with the consequences of our decisions, it doesn't mean that we're not forgiven, it doesn't mean that we're not welcome and being restored, but sometimes living with the consequences of our decision is a kind of grace because in so living we recognize what we don't want to do again. And as scar tissue begins to heal over the wound that we may have inflicted by our own poor choices, God continues to restore us. So Isaiah says, bad news, you made your bed and now you gotta live in it, sleep in it. But here's good news. After a season of exile, when you live with the consequences of your decision and you come to your senses, much like the prodigal, when you come to your senses, there is coming a day when God, because of God's good character and because of God's good grace, God will set a table before you where all, not only you, but where all who have ever anguished and suffered will be welcomed, all the nations of the world, and they will eat at this feast. And we read about that beautiful day that is to come in chapter 25 of Isaiah, beginning in verse six. On this mountain, Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, not just some peoples, not not just the insiders, and Israel, not just you, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, a feast of filled, good food, filled with marrow and well-aged wines, strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is the great messianic banquet that is to come, the dominant image of hope in the people of Israel that there is going to be a table spread and God will prepare the food and all are welcome. And if you look for it, that image is saturated in all of these moments, these table moments with Jesus. There are images and inferences to the great messianic banquet all through the gospels. For example, when Jesus teaches about the parable of the wedding feast, which we'll learn about in just a few weeks in this series, the great surprise of the wedding feast is not the bride or the groom or the... The parents of the bride or groom, it's not even about the wedding coordinator, believe it or not. It's about the strange scandal of the diversity on the invitation list of who is scandalously invited to this party. Well, that's the messianic banquet. 
It's also emerging when we see the Roman centurion come to Jesus and say, Lord, I know, I know that you're busy and I'm busy. I've got people to answer to and people are answering to me just like you, but I have a servant far from here who is paralyzed and, and, and I need you, if you're willing, to heal him. And Jesus said, well, let's go. And the Roman centurion said, no, we're way too busy than that, but if you say the word, he will be healed. And Jesus does something, it's fascinating, blows my mind. Jesus says, he turns to his friends, in all of Israel, I have never seen faith like this man. In other words, among all of us insiders who are in the right religion, who use the right words, who speak the right language, who have the right ethnicity, the right nationality, the right story of all of Israel, I have seen greater faith in no one like this man. And he goes on in Matthew 8 to bring these words. But I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline, which is a euphemism for table, will recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The Messianic feast, this great table is all through the teachings of Jesus and why? Because it's where the whole thing is going. You and I cannot possibly fathom the depth of desire that God has for all to be made well, for all to be restored and redeemed and reconciled back to God. This is why all through the New Testament there's this phrase that recurs in Colossians and Ephesians and several of the Gospels that God is through Christ gathering all things back to himself. And I think about this morning how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. It's where the whole thing is going, but here's the rub, oh Christian. Jesus called people to follow him in the way so that we might order our lives in such a way that demonstrates to the world that there's a banquet coming. He's called us to order our lives in such a way that within our lives, the world around us sees an invitation to a table that is irresistible enough for them to bring themselves to the party. Now, for years and years, I've used a phrase with you, and I love this phrase, it's a powerful one. It's called proleptic living. Now, children who are listening today here in the NFLC, proleptic living is in your worship guide. Why would we put proleptic living in the worship guide at JCBC? Because that's what we do here. Children, I want you to know what this means. Proleptic living comes from a really fancy word called prolepsis. Pro meaning ahead of time or something that happens before. And lepsis, which has a root word that means to grab or to seize or to lay a hold of. So proleptic living means seeing something that is coming in the future ahead of time. And then grabbing, seizing, laying hold of, and embracing that thing now as if the thing that is to come is already breaking in. And you know why? Because it is. And every time 
You give yourself to an act of compassion or mercy or forgiveness every time you welcome the outcast. And you love the stranger, but not just the stranger who is like you, but the enemy that you wish would just keep on stepping. Every time that you express the love of Christ in this world, what you are doing is proleptically reaching ahead to that great day when we're all feasting around God's good banquet and you're dragging it into the here and now. Every time that you make room in the table of your heart for the other, you're bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And you're like, well, who's the other? You know who the other is. Everybody has the other in their lives. If you don't know who the other is, you're not looking at your life close enough. Because God will put in your life the other to see what you're gonna do about it. To see if you will say, oops, sorry, we're full here. No, didn't make a reservation in my heart, sorry. God will put the other in your life to see if you you know the tables that, that have leaves in them? You know, and you get on each side and you say, okay, pull, and you pull it open and lo and behold, the table that looks so good the way it was opens up and you put these leaves in it and now it's wider. God will put the other in your life to see if you're willing by faith to open up space in your heart for the other because to the degree that you make space at the table of your heart for the other is the degree to which the kingdom of God will explode in your house. Beloved, this is what this series is going to be about. How do we make room for the other? How do we strategically allow God to transform us in such a way that makes space for those who we wish were not only not at the table, but at a different restaurant? Come on. But before we talk about that mystery, and before we spend the next few weeks talking about how to order our lives so that we might live proleptically as if the kingdom is breaking in right here and now, before we talk about that mystery, we have another mystery to talk about. And it's the greater mystery. I mean, because the great mystery is not that there's going to be a messianic banqueting table. There is going to be a messianic banqueting table and all shall be fed. The great, the great shock is not even in the scandal of that diverse invitation list that God has made by God's own design. No. The greatest mystery, the great shock, the greatest scandal is that there's even room for you. That may not shock us. Because sometimes we are so accustomed to believing, well, of course there's room at the table for me. I mean, I sent my reservation in months ago. I did everything that I was supposed to do to come to this party. Of course there's room for me. Maybe this series might be an opportunity to investigate just how scandalous it was that you were invited. Yeah. 
And beloved, listen, this is the burden of preaching because I'm called to comfort the afflicted, but sometimes God puts on my heart to afflict the comfortable. And, 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 and unless, unless we know that, that it was a scandal for God to set out a place setting for us, well then, we're not ready for the banquet. But I am convinced that there is someone here listening today, I, I, gar- I promise you, who believes that you are not welcome. And it may be because of where you've been or what you've done or who you are or how you, how you approach life. It may be because of the things you think or maybe things that you've said. And I, and I know, I know. But can I tell you something? The other day, the other day I was, uh, I was looking in, in, a, in a mirror and it occurred to me, Sean, uh, you're getting old. <laughs> Somebody said amen. Stop that. And if you look at the mirror long enough, well, I begin to see I got more gray hair than I ever did. I got wrinkles I didn't used to have. And I be- but if, do you know that if you look, if you look, at a mirror long enough. You begin to allow your own reflection to invite you in to memories of your own past. And you recall your story. And some of you, when you woke up this morning, looked in a mirror and were reminded of where you've been, how you've suffered and maybe how you've inflicted some suffering and maybe because of those things you're at a place where you hear me talking about this messianic banquet and this table and you believe that there is nothing in you that qualifies your presence there. Can I just give you an image to think about? I want you to take a look at the screen right now. This picture is an image of a 14th century icon. An icon is simply a a piece of devotional art. It, it, It means artists would render some spiritual moment or biblical moment and it was meant for the observer to study it, to consider its detail and to find what it may have to speak to them. This was in the day before Instagram and before Google images and so this was an act of devotion. This one was made by Andrei Rublev, a Russian in the 14th century, and it's called The Hospitality of Abraham. It depicts the story in Genesis 18, remember, where the three angels, the three men come to Abraham and Sarah to tell them that they're going to have a baby, and, and yet the thing is filled with symbolism. Just over the middle figure there, you see the, a tree, the Oak of Mamre, where the, the event took place. But the, the icon is actually known by a better name. It's called the Trinity because it is believed that Rublev really intended to depict the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Take a look at the person in gold, God the Father, dressed in gold, depicting regality and perfection, holiness. And there just beside him, God the Son, 
dressed in blue royalty and undergirded by red crimson, the color of sacrifice and suffering. He's holding two fingers up, if you can see that far, to indicate his two natures, divine and human, spirit and matter fused together as one. And then, of course, you have the third person of the Trinity, the spirit, dressed in green, I love it, dressed in green, to depict growth. One person called the spirit, the great God, the photosynthesis, (laughs) because it is through the spirit that all growth comes. But the real compelling part of the piece is happening around a table. A table with a chalice to symbolize communion. The idea that Father and Son and Spirit exist in a state of mutual submission and care and hospitality and love where they coexist with one another in an ongoing, eternal, perpetual sense of welcome and love. And yet the most compelling of all to me, if you take a close look beneath the chalice, you see there's a, there's a small square just beneath, a rectangle if you can see, at an open place at the table. An open place setting where there is no chair and historians believe that there is a residue on that rectangle that indicate it may have had some ancient glue that they believe held originally, wait for it, a mirror so that every observer who would come and study this piece would see not only God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in this harmonious, beautiful coexistence in Trinitarian love, but will at the same time simultaneously see at that holy table room for herself, room for himself to see that no matter what they see in the mirror, what God sees, is someone that God wants to dine with the divine. Beloved, I don't know where you are on the journey today and I don't know if it's news to you that you're welcome, but when I say you're welcome, it's not some news that I made up. The great messianic banqueting table is a table that is set by God and the food is prepared by God and so is the invitation list. And you You are welcome at that table. And there's nothing that you do to make your place setting prepare. See, I have on my phone an app called Open Table. That means when it's date night and I take Laura out and I'm trying to show off and take her to a fancy restaurant, I can go on and try to find my own reservation and it may say to me, sorry, sucker, there's no room here but I can just scroll and find another restaurant that will say to me, why yes, Mr. King, 645, come ready to have a good time because at our place there is space for you. There is an open table for you. And 700 years before this morning, there was, before an app lived on my phone, there was an icon that Rublev was attempting to preach to the world God's table is an open table and you are welcome.